Amen. Let's take our Bibles, please. Turn to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 as we continue through the book of Mark. And uh, tonight, I would invite you to be here at 5 o'clock. We're going to observe the Lord's table together. And I, uh, I'm thinking in my mind that this morning's service has helped prepare me for the Lord's table. We have done a lot of singing and reflecting about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. And so I look forward to tonight, and there will be more of that tonight, more singing about the cross and more singing about the blood. And uh, we look forward to gathering around the Lord's table for a time of worship. And so would you join us tonight? Uh, Brother Calvin Allen, I, my watch just buzzed a minute ago, and I don't know where he is today or what, where he's preaching and why he's not in church at this hour. I'm not sure. But uh, he texted me this verse, and I don't know if he's maybe on the road and in different time zone and watching a little bit of us, but he tempt, sent me this verse just a minute ago. He sent redemption unto his people. He hath commanded his covenant forever. Holy and reverence is his name. Boy, isn't it something that almost feels like he's been watching our service, that he sent redemption to his people. What a great verse of scripture, Psalm 111, verse 9. But let's look at Mark chapter 11 today, and, and uh, I'm going to be uh, very honest with you. It's going to, uh, I have a lot of material to cover, and I'm, I'm going to do my very best to cover it very quickly. And so I invite you to listen quickly. We won't be able to turn to every scripture that I read, and I pray and hope that you trust that I copied it down correctly uh, to save me having to turn as well. But Mark chapter 11, we, we're reminded of the the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about his triumphal entry. And you'll remember that time where the Lord Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and with the shouts of Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. The Bible says that he would proceed through the city of Jerusalem and he'd come to the temple mount. And there the Bible says in Mark chapter 11 and verse 11, Mark chapter 11, I'm going to turn back, sorry, verse 11, it says, And Jesus entered into Jerusalem and into the temple, and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the even time was come, and he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. He did nothing but look around. We talked about that a little bit last week. What did he see as he looked around that temple place? And no doubt his heart was grieved, for he would retire to Bethany that night and rest, but return the next morning. And there he would make his way to the temple, and when he got to the temple, he would cleanse it. He would turn over the tables and the money changers and drive out those that sold their goods. And the Bible says that Jesus proclaimed, My father's house shall be called a house of prayer, and ye have turned it into a den of thieves. And so let's look together today at Mark chapter 11, and if you'll read with me in verse 12. Mark chapter 11 and verse 12, it says, And on the morrow when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. Sorry, jump down. I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong passage. Jump down a little bit further. Verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people was astonished at his doctrine. 
Notice what it says, and when the even was come, he went out of the city. Nobody dared throw the Lord Jesus Christ out of the temple. You would think that at that moment they would want to arrest him, but for fear of the people, they left him alone, and the Lord would teach the remainder of the day until he retired again unto Bethany. Let's pray tonight. Father, we love you, and we thank you for your word, and I pray that you'd help us. And Lord, my heart is already encouraged and blessed by all that we have heard today, Lord, and it's edified my soul, but I pray more importantly that would have worshiped you. Lord, only you know the hearts that were united in worship today and the hearts that lifted you up. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us never to re- forget that, that just because words come out of our lips does not mean we are praising and worshiping a holy God in spirit and in truth. But, Lord, I pray that you'd search our hearts and help us to be right with you, and especially tonight as we come to the Lord's table that we might take in a worthy manner. So, Father, I pray that you bless your word now. I, I need your help. i just a weak vessel, and I pray that you would take it and fill my life with the Holy Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God may speak to each one in this room and fill them as well. Help us, Lord, we pray. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Famously, this passage of Scripture, verses 15 through 19, have always been called the cleansing of the temple. As a matter of fact, probably at the top of your Bible somewhere, it might even say those very words as part of the index of Scripture that lets us know as we're flipping through the Bible how to find the different stories of Scripture. This is one of the few stories that appears in all four Gospels, and we call this the second cleansing of the temple, for John records one in, earlier in the Bible in John chapter 2. As we come to this passage of Scripture, though, I think there's a a bigger thing unfolding that we need to understand. And for us to make proper application, you say, well, what, let me put it this way, what does the temple really have to do with modern Christianity? A friend of mine, Pastor Gord Connor, had a church called Temple Baptist Church, and he changed the name to Greater Vancouver Baptist Church for that reason. The, The temple has a different meaning today than it once did. But I want you to notice that everything in the Old Testament was given for our admonishment. It was given to teach us. It was the schoolmaster, if you will, and to bring us understanding of what would happen in the new. And so this is no different. So I want to give you some things today that might help us understand the house of God and what the scriptures are talking about here today as the Lord Jesus Christ comes and cleanses his father's temple. I'm going to give you three things, and I'll just tell you right up front what they are. First of all, I want to give you a chronicle of the house of God. If I could just take a few moments and give you a brief history, and it'll be more of a teaching time and maybe not as dynamic or as applicable as you might think, but it's going to help us understand the next point when we come to the cleansing of the house of God, and then we'll see some conclusions regarding the house of God. And so let's look first of all this morning as we consider this passage of scripture, let me just take a moment and give you a chronicle of the house of God. We see three things in Scripture as we see this progression unfold or this history take place before our eyes. We see, first of all, the formation of God's purpose. The formation of God's purpose. Just as God does with many things in the Word of God, He starts with something that is meaningful and, and figure, to, or, or, sorry, is very formative that will help us understand. You know, the Bible says this that right now we live by faith, amen? We live by faith, but one day our faith will become sight. Do you know that in the Old Testament, so many things were the the other way around? God started things with physical manifestations by sight, and now we are expected to live by faith. 
And so uh, you remember the, the testimony of Peter that he said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And later on, Jesus would say, blessed art thou for flesh and blood have not revealed this unto you. And, and later on, we see that as others came into belief of the Lord Jesus Christ, they believed because they saw. But the Bible says, blessed are they who see not and still believe. And so we live by faith. We're a people of faith, but that's not how it started. God started with something very visible that people could put their faith in. And so we see a chronicle of uh, the, the foundation of God's purpose, the formation of God's purpose. Then we're going to see the failing of God's people and finally the fulfillment of God's plan as we talk about this chronicle. And so look, if you will, in the scriptures with me all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 28. We're going to go there, Genesis chapter 28, and we're going to work our way through the Bible for a few moments in kind of a Bible study that I really believe will lay a framework to help us understand very, very simple points this morning. Genesis chapter 28, and we're going to see the formation of God's purpose. When did God's house first get mentioned in the word of God. And, and why is that important? And so let's look, Genesis chapter 28 and verse 10. And Jacob went out from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he lighted upon a, a certain place and tarried there all night because the sun was set and he took of the stones of that place and put them for the pillars and lay down in this place, to, or in that place to sleep. I'm in verse 12 of Genesis chapter 28. And he dreamed... And behold, a ladder set upon the earth, and the top of, the, of it reached to the heaven, and behold, the angels of God ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, uh, Abraham thy father, and the God of Isaac, the land wherein thou liest to, the, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed. And thy seed shall be as the dust of the earth, and thou shalt spread abroad to the west, and to the east, and to the north, and to the south. And in thee and in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And behold, I am with thee, and will keep thee in all places, whither thou goest, and will bring thee again into this land. For I will not leave thee until I have done that which I have spoken to thee of." The Lord comes to the, Jacob in a, in a dream and he renews his pledge to Abraham that he would make a nation that would be great and mighty. And he even hints at their time in Egypt as he says, no matter where you go, I will bring you back again into the land. Now notice what happens when he wakes up in verse 16. And Jacob awaked out of his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. I wonder sometimes as I pause at verse 17, do we ever have that fear and dread when we come into the presence of God? Have we ever experienced God in such a way that the Spirit of God is just so real and so immense in our lives that it drives us on our face, that we fall before Him, that we are overwhelmed by His presence? And friends, I would suggest to you that we need those times with God, whether it's alone in a prayer closet or whether it's in a church service. Sometimes we're ashamed to show others how God is working in our lives. And we don't want the tears to flow. And we don't want the emotion. So we're not, we're not going to get caught up in emotionalism. Listen, when God moves your heart, it's not emotionalism. When God provokes something in you, 
It's real. And Jacob was overwhelmed. He said, what a terrible and a dreadful place. This is the very house of God and the gate of heaven. Verse 18, and Jacob rose up early in the morning and took the stone that he had put in his pillows, or put for his pillows. You think you got a tough bed to lay on. And set it up for a pillar and poured oil upon the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel. The name of that city was called Luz at the first. Bethel means the house of God. The house of God. The descendants of Jacob would multiply. They'd become a great nation, but they would also find themselves in Egypt. But while they're in Egypt, as I alluded to earlier during our worship time, God redeemed them. In a literal and physical sense, he purchased them out of slavery by the very blood of a shed lamb that was posted upon their door, and God delivered them out of the hand of Pharaoh to make of them a great and mighty nation. And what a wonderful picture of God's redemptive power and spiritually in our lives today. The Bible says, for he who hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin, we are redeemed by the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, John said, that takes away the sins of the world. And so we see Jacob, his vision starts with seeing the very house of God and God remembered his people and brought them out years later he would command Moses to construct a sanctuary it says in Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8 and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them there's an important key in that verse you see God wanted a place on earth that he might dwell among his people That was always the purpose of God. And as we outlay the formation of his purpose this morning, I want you to understand that is the purpose of God. He wants to dwell among his people. God dwelt with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden until they were driven out by sin. Later on, he says, I want to redeem my people. And as he redeemed them from the place called Egypt, he wanted to dwell with them again. And he commanded Moses, make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Later, Moses would construct a tabernacle as God had commanded down to the very smallest detail. Exodus chapter 39 says this, And Moses did look upon all the work, and behold, they had done it as the Lord had commanded. Even so had they done it, and Moses blessed them. Following that time of construction, when everything was done right down to the very minute centimeter, measured perfectly, By the hand of God, the people would dedicate the temple, the great time of worship and prayer. And the Bible says, here's what happened next. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter into the tent of the congregation because the cloud abode thereon, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I'm just reading that scripture and thinking to myself, what did that represent to the enemies of God? To see the cloud descend upon that tabernacle and know that God in all his power had come to the Israelites. Oh, that people might look at Bethel Baptist Church like that and see that it is a place of God's working and God's power on a regular basis. Many years would pass and Israel would wander through the wilderness until they established that great nation called Israel. And the Bible says as Solomon would later on build a permanent temple. 
We see the tabernacle on the screens behind me and now the temple that Solomon built in 1 Kings chapter 8. And it came to pass when the priests were come out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Solomon would later build the temple of God on the mount in Jerusalem. And they too would build it to God's exact specifications. They would worship and they would pray and God's spirit would descend and fill the very house of God. That's the formation of his purpose. We see with Jacob, we see with Moses, and we see with Solomon all three times God desperately wanting to dwell among his people. That's what the house of God represents. So we see the formation of his purpose, but I want you to see the failing of God's people. I don't need to turn to scripture after scripture, but I could find a hundred this morning that would say the same thing. And Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And over and over, God's people would sin throughout the word of God. And we see that finally in Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 18, the prophet records this, then the glory of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubims. Later on, we see in 1 Kings, I will encourage you to turn there with me, 1 Kings chapter 25. 1 Kings chapter 25, we have a chronicle of the life of Israel through the book of Kings and Chronicles. And in 1 Kings chapter 25, we read what happened when God departs. What a a horrible place when God is not in the house of God. I'm going to Say I got the wrong scripture, I'm going to turn to 2 Kings chapter 25. 2 Kings chapter 25. By the way, that song that Brother Judge put up, that was my fault. I'm still cross-eyed and I got the wrong page number. It was one across, so don't blame him, blame me. And the same reason you got 1 Kings instead of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 25, look if you will in verse 8. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came Nebuchadnezzar, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem, and he burnt the house of the Lord. And the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great man's house burnt he with fire. And all the army of the Chaldees that were with The captain of the guard break down the walls of Jerusalem round about. Now the rest of the people that were left in the city and the fugitives that fell away to the king of Babylon with the remnant of the multitude did Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, carry away. So we have the Babylonian captivity, but notice how they burnt down the house of God. I'm going to read more. I know we don't have a lot of time, but I want you to see the extent of this destruction. But the captain of the guard left off the poor of the land to be vine dressers and husbandmen. And the pillars of brass that were in the house of the Lord and the bases and the brazen sea that was in the house of the Lord did the Chaldees break in pieces and carried the brass of them to Babylon. And the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the The spoons and all the vessels of brass wherewith they ministered took they away. 
and the fire pots and the bowls and of such. I won't read any more, but suffice to say that they destroyed the temple and took everything of value. There was nothing left as the Babylonians destroyed the house of God. That is the failing of God's people. Then I want to see thirdly the fulfillment of God's plan. As we consider the chronicle of the house of God today, I want you to think about the fulfillment. Zerubbabel, how many of you have heard that name? It's not really a name you would name your child, Zerubbabel. But Zerubbabel would rebuild the temple. He would rebuild it to the same specifications and worship would continue. Later on, Herod would expand the temple, not the size of the temple itself, but the temple mount and its platform, and he would re-beautify it and renovate it. It had now been hundreds of years old, and the, the desert sands had beat upon it, and it, it needed some upkeep and repair. And so Herod, as, a, as a, a gift to the Jews to try to win their loyalty, would rebuild the temple, and it would be dedicated, the third temple, shortly before the birth of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. From the time the Babylonians were carried off into captivity, we never see in the word of God, God's glory return to the temple. You can look. All through scripture, whether it's Zerubbabel's, whether it's Herod's, we do not see the glory of God come back to the temple. Here's the sad thing, worship continued. Lambs were slaughtered, blood was shed, incense was burned, Prayers were offered. The table of showbread was maintained. The lamps in the holy place were kept lit. The Ark of the Covenant was still there. The high priest would go in once a year and offer blood of atonement. And on and on it went with no God. Boy, does that sound familiar. But then one night, glory returned to the earth in the form of Jesus Christ. And the angels would cry, glory to God in the highest. And on that night, Christ was born, we read, and there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He said, what does that mean about this glory of God coming to earth? Listen to this in Colossians chapter 1. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness Dwell. Colossians chapter 2, for he that dwelleth, uh, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. What about that temple? Herod took 40 years to construct that temple, and what happened to it? In the year 70 AD, the Persians would raid, and they completely destroyed the temple once again. The Lord Jesus Christ, while he was here on earth, described that temple as a den of thieves. And he prophesied of its total destruction in Matthew chapter 24. During the life of Jesus, listen, it was in him that God was present on this earth. You didn't have to go to the temple. You just simply went to Christ. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. 
as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was the true temple of God, and Christ referred to this fact when he said to the Jews, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. He was the manifestation of God on earth. So what happened next? The temple was destroyed. And man, ever since, by the way, the temple's never been rebuilt. I've been there. I've been to the Temple of the Mount. Have you, ever, have you ever seen those pictures of Jerusalem and they have that building up there on the mount with the big gold roof? That's a Muslim mosque. That is not a temple of God. As a matter of fact, you've got to be very careful up there if you're a Christian. They make you dress a certain way. My wife and I were posing for a picture and I just kind of snuggled in with her and they came over right away and said, you, step, you separate. You don't do that up here. They have full control over that mount. You have to be very careful. The mount has never been, or the temple has never been rebuilt. It will one day, and God will sit upon the throne. Listen, why do we not need a temple today? Because we have the Lord Jesus Christ. And in him, the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Notice the scriptures with me this morning, and we're almost done this this, uh, chronicle, if you will, of the house of God. Notice what the comparisons we see in Scripture after Christ has died and paid the price for our sins. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look, look what he says now. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, you can picture Peter as he's thinking through the history of the Jews and reminded that the temple has now been built and rebuilt three times. He says, ye as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Christ Jesus. The temple existed as a place of sacrifice and worship, a place of atonement where blood was shed and put upon the altar. But now he says, we don't need those physical building blocks. Ye are lively stones or living stones built up as a spiritual house. You are the house of God. The Bible reminds us, he that hath the Son hath life. That's the very Spirit of God dwelling within this temple. Notice what the Scripture says also in the book of Ephesians and we all, sorry, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. That's what you are. You are bought with a price. You are a very temple of God, a tabernacle, if you will that the Holy Spirit indwells and takes up residence in. I, I think it's a wonderful thing, and here's why. The nation of Israel sinned against God, and God departed from the temple. Can you imagine being a godly man or woman living in the nation of Israel? And because of the sins of all those around you, God departs? Wouldn't that be a horrible thing? My wife and I were watching a basketball documentary the other day. I make my wife watch sports sometimes. It told the story of a team from the 1950s, and she liked it because it was West Texas. And this team, he was trying to build this team together, and he wanted to build some unity among them. And it was a true story, a documentary about this team. And, and so what they did was if one of the players messed up, they all had to run wind sprints. 
And they all had to work out extra and they all had to pay the penalty because it built unity. But boy, I don't like that idea. I don't know about you. If somebody commits a crime, I wouldn't want us all to go to jail. But the Lord Jesus Christ, God, God in the presence of the temple, left when Israel messed up. But here's the thing. Now that he abides in each one of us, the Bible calls it the priesthood of believers. We are each responsible for ourselves. Does God dwell within you? Oh, there's another application we can make this morning. Just because the God dwells within your parents doesn't mean he dwells within you. Just because God dwells in your family's home in the hearts of other believers doesn't mean he dwells within you. Each one of us are responsible to be the temple or the tabernacle that God desires. And so we see the chronicle of the house of God is started when, when Jacob's ladder, the vision of God, he saw this is the place where God meets with man and God is at the top and he's desiring to dwell among men. He called it Bethel. Later, Moses would build the tabernacle, then Solomon the temple, a visible place where God would dwell with man. But now he dwells in this temple. He lives among us. I believe in the New Testament, we also see that we have the church. And when I say the church, I mean the body of believers, but I also mean the church house. We can call that the house of God. As a matter of fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul says, if I, if I tarry long, that you may know how to behave yourselves in the house of God. So he gave them doctrine so that as they gathered together to worship the Lord, they had a framework to follow, that they would know how to behave. And so today, we have the spiritual temple. But friend, I hope you know that when we come to church, we come to the house of God as well. And in this place, we want to see the glory of God manifest. That's the chronicle of the house of God. But now let's see if we can get the application of what Jesus is doing in Mark chapter 11, the cleansing of the house of God. Turn back to Mark chapter 11 and just notice a couple things. I know my time is almost gone, but I'll be very quick now, I promise you. Mark chapter 11, look at verse 15. And they came to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house should be called of all nations the house of prayer? but ye have made it a den of thieves. I'm going to give you two things very quickly. The cleansing of the temple. Understand this. As we look at the chronicle of the temple, how many of you would, this is what I see, what God did in the Old Testament temple, he says, I want to do in your bodies. This is a visible representation that we can turn back in our Bibles to and we can find it as a schoolmaster to admonish us and to bring us into truth. And if God did it in the Old Testament, he says, this is what it's going to take to see my presence manifest, to see my glory, to know my power. This is what it takes. Then does it not stand to reason that that's what he would do today in our physical bodies? We are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Notice two things. Number one, he desires purity. He desires purity. 
Notice what it says in verse 15 and 16. He cast out the money changers. He turned over their tables. He threw out all those that were doing wrong and wicked, that sold and bought, that took their money, or were making great gains off the things of religion. God says, I want my house to be pure. I want it to be sinless. I want it to be right. I want it to be holy. As the Lord Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem, the Bible says he just simply went into the temple. And it doesn't say that he exclaimed anything or got angry at all, but he looked around and this is what he saw. He saw all this nonsense going on. And it grieved his heart. What if the Lord were to take a tour of your life today? If you were to look into this temple of the Holy Ghost, what would he see? He wants it to be pure. His desire is that that might be pure. But also, his desire is that it's a place of prayer. God's desire for purity and God's desire for prayer. In verse 17, he says, It is written, My house shall be called of all nations a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. I got thinking about those two things, purity and prayer. Purity and prayer. When is it that we see God move in our lives? When we go to God and we confess our sins and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness and we make prayer a priority in our lives, then we begin to see God move. And we see his power return. All that we would have an awakening in our lives and soon after our church. That God would pour out his spirit because we're a people that are dedicated our lives to purity and we have dedicated ourselves to prayer. Oh, that we would seek his face. The spirit filled the tabernacle (coughs) and the temple only after God's commands were observed in every single detail. Obedience. My mind works a little funny sometimes. You can snicker if you want, but at least it works. And I look back at the scripture and I think, I wonder... I wonder if Moses is walking through that tabernacle and saying, wait a minute, you cut that board too long. Get up there and fix that. That, that covering, it's, it's, it's supposed to be stretched a little bit differently and it's supposed to be laid out. The dimensions here, when I measured the fence row here, it's, it, it's just about two feet too long. Well, well, come on, Moses. I mean, weren't those... A, no, no. They were exact. The Ark of the Covenant was laid out exactly by cubit how big God wanted it to be. To be overlaid with gold within and without. Hey, nobody's going to see the inside. But God would. And every detail had to be made just perfect. What does that illustrate to us? That God is a God that wants our obedience. He wants us to live right and pure. To follow his word. The Bible says Jesus Christ himself commanded, if you love me, keep my commandments. That's when the spirit of God works. The spirit descended on the day of Pentecost. We love that story, don't we? Acts chapter 2. Do you know what happened before Acts chapter 2? 
They spent a whole week in an upper room praying, 120 people. Can you imagine? 7.05 on a Wednesday night, we're looking at our watch. 120 people spent a week together. It couldn't have been a Baptist church. There'd been blood in the aisles. Sometimes, sometimes you know that it's not a Baptist church because it says they were all in one accord. Man, we, we fight with one another and we wonder why there's no power of God. He wants purity and he wants prayer. The Spirit of God fell after many, many days of consecrated prayer. God still cleanses his temple today, by the way. Hebrews chapter 12 says, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. So let me give you some conclusions very quickly. What can we draw from this? Four things, some conclusions about the house of God. Number one, it is to be a spiritual place. I think we can see that, can't we? Whether the Old Testament or the New, it was a spiritual place. It was a place where God was wanting to come, but it required holiness. Holiness. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Amen. By the way, that's not your idea of holiness, it's God's. They say, well, I, I think I'm, you know, I'm living pretty good and I'm doing certain things that, that would, no, 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 it's not up to you. It's up to God. We have to follow his word. It's a spiritual place. Number two, it is a supernatural place. A supernatural place. What do I mean by that? Listen to these verses and I'll tell you what I mean. The voice of the Lord, Psalm 29.9, the voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calve and discovereth the forest and in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. Listen to this verse in 1 Peter. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What do I mean by a supernatural place? It's not about you. It's about his glory. It's about his glory. If you came to church today hoping that people might notice you, you came for the wrong reason. We came to lift up Jesus and to bring him all the glory. It is a supernatural place because it's not about us, it's about God. It's about God. Thirdly, I want you to notice this from the scriptures. It is to follow a special plan. It is to follow a special plan. Just as God gave an order to the temple's construction and to the tabernacle and, and to set things in order that he might come and meet with his people, the same is true today. It is about his plan and his will. I already shared with you 1 Timothy where the Bible says that, that you might know how to behave yourselves in the house of God. The Bible says in the apostles' letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We belong to him. And number four, it is to be a sacrificial place. That's what the temple was all about, worship and sacrifice. He said, but we don't, we don't sacrifice like that anymore. We don't bring lambs and goats and, and shed their blood and sacrifice them. No, we don't. Because the Lamb of God was a sacrifice once and for all. 
the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. But the New Testament gives us three different sacrifices as believers. Number one, listen to this, the sacrifice of praise. Hebrews chapter 13 says, By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God. Continually, that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Think about that. God says, I want you to sacrifice. And we think, oh man, that is so hard to give. So He says, I just want you to praise me. That's it. Just open up your lips and give glory and praise to God. The sacrifice of praise. Then we see the sacrifice of giving. We notice in Hebrews chapter 13, the very next verse, but to do good and to communicate, forget not. For what such sacrifices, God is well pleased. God is pleased with our sacrifices of our works and our gifts. Listen, you can't work your way to heaven, but our works are a blessing to God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Titus 2.14, Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of goods, good works. Listen, God's people should be a praising people, but we should be a serving people, doing whatever we can to be a blessing unto the Lord. And then, of course, there's the sacrifice of ourselves. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God is still cleansing the temple today. Every time you open the word of God, and he begins to prick your heart. He's cleansing it. He's like Moses I spoke about earlier and said, hey, that's just not right up there. You didn't follow the instructions just carefully enough. Sometimes he just guides us and directs us. Other times he has to chasten us to bring us back into the right place. But it's because he loves us. And listen to this final thought. It's because he wants to dwell with his people. They say, oh, but preacher, we're in the New Testament. He will never leave me nor forsake me. I can do whatever I want. Oh, no, friends. You will grieve the Holy Spirit of God. You will vex the Holy Spirit of God. You will sin against the Holy Spirit of God. And then you'll say, why do we have no power in my life? Why does God not hear my prayers? Why does God not speak to me? Why does he not move in my life? Oh, that we would be a pure people, a prayerful people, that we might see the glory of God work in our lives. Father, help us, we pray. Speak to our hearts. Minister to us, Lord. I feel like going through all that history is such a feeble attempt to try to help us understand. And Lord, I pray that you would just commit it to our hearts and minds and so much scripture to absorb today. But I pray that it would do its perfect work. My words have no effect, but the Spirit of God can work through His Word. And so I pray, Lord, that something would prick our hearts today and help us, Lord, to be a holy people, peculiar people, a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, that we might sing forth His praises. Oh God, help us to be those temples that we ought to be, the very temple of God, purchased by His blood, bought with a price and given holy 
in sacrifice to you to do with what you please. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand this morning with our heads bowed. Maybe God has pricked your heart this morning. The altar's open even now. Let me just ask you this quickly. I'm not going to tarry saying too much. I'll let the Spirit of God speak to our hearts. But maybe you're a temple with no spirit. Maybe you don't know God. Never trusted Christ as your Savior. And we can help you with that today. We'll take you a Bible and we'll show you what it means to have eternal life. Somebody would be pleased if a a gentleman would step out and come right now. Brother Roberts will meet you right down here in the front. If a lady would come, my wife will meet you right down here in the front. Take a Bible and help you find the Lord Jesus Christ today and how you can know for sure. You say, can we know for sure? John said, these things have I written unto them that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's a promise of Scripture that you can know and have a peace and assurance. The Spirit of God can come into your life today. God wants to know you. Isn't that, a, isn't that a, just a, almost incomprehensible that God wants to know you. He wants to know me because he loves us.